Last week, we introduced the idea of our theme for the year, which is uh, a single word. Hopefully, it's easy to remember. It's just the word sent, uh, like you have been sent somewhere or mail has been sent. Um, and that word it can convey a lot of ideas. I mean, it can convey the idea of like mail or just the simple sending of, of something from one place to another place. Uh, it also, it's, it's the idea behind the word apostle. An apostle is one who is sent. And you can read through the Bible and you can see that there are examples of uh, apostles who have a very obvious, very clear mission and a very direct sending from Jesus. Jesus sent them out, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Like we, we know the verses about their sending and they, Jesus would sent out the 70 or he sent them out two by two or Jesus sent out his disciples to go and preach. And there's all these examples you can find of people being sent. Paul is someone who was sent in a very obvious way. But sometimes I think because the Bible focuses a lot on the actions of the apostles, in fact, we have a book that's called the Acts of the Apostles. That's, that's kind of what it is. It's the actions of the apostles. We focus a lot on those with the very obvious sending that sometimes we can, I think, look back at the first century and assume uh, that the entire church was like Paul. And I think in reality, the entire church was not like Paul. Um, there were Christians, say, in the city of Colossae, who had heard the gospel, they were living their lives, they had their family, they had their job, they had their home, they heard the good news of Jesus Christ, they believed it with all of their heart, they accepted it and named him as Lord of their life, as opposed to all those others who tried to grab their allegiance and their faith, and, and they submitted to him in baptism, their sins were washed away, and they began living for him. And they still had the same job, and they still had the same house, and they still had the same family, and they still saw the same people that they saw on a day-to-day -day basis. Their lives were radically transformed by Jesus, but from the outside looking in, they look like they are still living in the same culture and context. And, and, and you could say, well, what about a person like that? And the, the idea of the lesson last week was that hopefully we could see a person even like that who might not have an obvious call from like Isaiah had there at the throne room scene or might not have the, the sight of Jesus there on the road to Damascus like Paul or he might not have this huge moment where his life is unalterably transformed forever but he is still living his life. And the idea we had was that we should consider a person like that sent as well. Because a person right there is living his life in Colossae for a reason. He's going to that job for a reason. He's around his family for a reason. He's around his neighbors for a reason. And God could use him and expect to use him exactly where he is. And we shouldn't perhaps spend so much time concerned about discerning where God wants me to go as much as recognizing I'm where God wants me to be. Wherever you are, God could use you right there. God isn't, uh, his hands aren't tied behind his back because you didn't go here or didn't go there. God can use you right where you are. You're sent here. You're sent right to the seat that you're in and right to the job that you have and right to the house that you have and right next to your neighbors because there's a mission and a purpose for you right there. 
Not everyone's going to travel uh, on missionary journeys and be beaten for the cross of Christ and be stoned and left for dead and then get up and the church is going to admonish him to go on further and sneak you down through city walls, through baskets. That's like an exciting life and we like to kind of romanticize that that was the life of the early church and there were people who did that. Just like today, by the way. There are people who live the dangerous life of the, the missionary of Christ or the person who goes out into the foreign field or the person who goes and they, their calling is very obvious and their sending is very clear. And you can see where they left one place, where they went to another place and what they are doing there. And we like that idea, but not everyone's going to do that. As a matter of fact, it's very, very important that not everyone does that. Because one thing that is desperately needed throughout this world is a faithful presence of God, a faithful witness in a community of people who have been transformed by Jesus. And they're not all supposed to up and leave that community. Sometimes they can be sent right where they are. In fact, I think it's rather important. If you're going to be a city that's set on a hill, it's important to be in the city. If you're going to be a light, it's important to be around the darkness. I don't know how light gets away from it. Anyway, uh, if you're going to be the salt of the earth, you need to be rooted in the earth somewhere. And so the idea is that we are not all going to be able to up and go to distant lands, but you can be sent right where you are. And you can have a mission and a purpose right where you are. And Paul, in the uh, letter to the church at Colossae, if you want to turn to the book of Colossians, notice I, uh, I used an example of a random man from Colossae for a reason. That's where our lesson's going to come from. Uh, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul has been addressing some, some important uh, ideas uh, that are confronting the church at Colossae. If you were to pick up a commentary on the book of Colossians and read through it, it doesn't matter which commentary you pick, there's going to be a lengthy section probably at the beginning of it that is talking about a heresy that is taking place. Some sort of false idea is permeating the area. And there's a ton of debate about exactly what that idea is. Some people think it's, it's a particular branch of Judaism that is confronting the church. Uh, other people think that it's uh, like early Gnostic ideas that are confronting the church. Uh, some people think that it is uh, you know, just something from maybe some of the temple cults or the religious uh, cults there in Colossae itself. And there's all of these ideas about what it might be. And I think kind of the way I approach it is that it seems like it might be kind of coming from all directions. You look at what the problems are. You see things like people going to temples and having visions of angels. You see the practice of asceticism, which is like the denial of the body. Do not touch something that feels good. Do not taste something that's delicious. Uh, you know, there's these ideas about don't give yourself any pleasure. Uh, there are other ideas in there about, uh, about Sabbath day and new moons and festivals and circumcision and, and some of these ideas that are clearly rooted in Judaism. But then some of the other ideas are more difficult to directly connect to Judaism. There might be some branch or something like that. But anyway, it seems like if you look at where the, the heresy is coming from, it seems like it's bombarding them from every direction. And so I'm not sure that there is just one particular Colossian heresy, but rather it seems like they are being confronted with all sorts of ideas. And I think perhaps that makes it similar to our culture. It's not like there's just one idea in our culture that could perhaps cause you to drift away from Jesus, but it seems like there's a thousand ideas in our culture and they come from all kinds of directions. And it really depends on which group you're around or 
who you follow on Twitter or what school you go to or whatever, where you can see all of these different ideas and they can each nag at you. And they can each wear you out over time. And you could start to think, man, there's so many different worldviews and philosophies and ideas out there. There's so many different ways of seeing reality and ways of experiencing the world. Am I really sure that this is the right way? And so Paul addresses that. And he spends quite a bit of time showing that Jesus is greater than all of those other ideas you could ever hear. In fact, Jesus is what you have heard. Jesus is what you have believed. You've already committed yourself to him. He is a greater philosophy than all of the other ones out there. So don't be taken captive by these philosophies of men. Be taken captive by the philosophy of Christ and listen to him and let him be your Lord. And, and he says it more eloquently than I am right now, but he spends several chapters trying to make that very point right there. Jesus is greater than everything else. So listen to him. Jesus is who you've already committed yourselves to. So continue in, in your commitment to him. And then he goes to show what that will look like in your life. What will it look like when you have decided to follow Jesus? And even in a world that tugs at you from every direction, you stay committed to him. If you look at, uh, for example, Colossians chapter 3 in verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. I love the description he gives right there of Christ, who is our life. He doesn't say who is a part of our life or who you believe in during your life or something like that. He actually says your life is Christ. It's like there's, there's nothing else that matters. There's nothing else that, that can wiggle its way in there and push him to the side and to the boundary. He is your life now. And that's going to change things about you. Verse 5, this is what it changes. So consider the members of your body dead to sexual immorality or to uh, impurity or passion or evil desire or greed, or, which amounts to idolatry. For upon these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, when you once also walked when you were living in them. But now, verse 8, put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Don't lie to each other since you've laid aside the old self with his practices and have put on a new self. Notice that idea of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. He's saying you're, you've been transformed by Jesus. So live as a transformed person. What is that going to look like? Well, look at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, also you should forgive. Beyond these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Verse 17, whatever you do, whether in your speech or in your conduct, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So that's what the transformed life looks like. And then he goes on to describe what that looks like in the home and in the, in the household. And, and there's, there's going to be a new way of living that, uh, that is centered wholly around the fact that Christ is now your life. Now, I say all of that to say he spends the first part of the book demonstrating that even though you're being attacked from all these directions, stay committed to Christ, and it's going to change the way that you live. Now again, not every one of these people is then going to go out to all the most dangerous areas of the world and is going to live the life of the Apostle Paul. 
They're going to have to live this transformed life right where they are, and that's exactly what God wants them to do. And that's exactly where God could use them, right where they are. As Paul begins to conclude his letter, he gives them three admonitions. Basically, these are the things that I want you to do. These are things that you're sent right where you are to do. These are things you don't have to get up and be a missionary on the other side of the world. You can do them right where you are, and any Christian can do them. In fact, every Christian should do them. These are things that Paul wants them to commit themselves to and to dedicate themselves to. This is their mission, and this is their purpose right there where they are. And I believe it's our mission and our purpose right here where we are also. I think we can see a lot of similarities between what we're called to do and what they are called to do. And Paul is going to list them in Colossians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 2. Here are some things. If you want to know your purpose and your mission as a Christian, what you should be doing in the world, why you're here, what your call is, what your mission is right here, here are some pretty good ideas for you to keep in mind. Verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So notice the first thing he tells them to do is dedicate yourselves to prayer. Right where you are, no matter where you are in the world, you can dedicate yourself to a life of prayer. I believe each and every one of us could and probably should pray more than we do. Pray more about uh, what is going on in the world. Pray more about uh, the community in which we live. Pray more for this church right here. Pray more for those who are out in those dangerous places in the world. Notice he mentions a couple of things. He mentions devoting themselves to prayer. That means it's not just something you do in passing, or it's not just something you do, okay, mealtime, got to say my, my daily prayer. Uh, but this is something you devote yourself to. It becomes a ministry for you. It becomes a mission point for you that I'm going to be a person who spends more time in prayer than I do other things. I'm going to prioritize time spent in communion and fellowship and prayer with God above so many of the other thousand things that are gnawing at my schedule. So like there's so many things that can, just like there are ideas that can pull you in different directions, there are activities and schedules and places to be that can pull you in so many directions. So much so that we can find ourselves devoted to a lot of stuff that just ultimately won't matter all that much. Paul says, devote yourself to prayer. And pray, verse 3, for us as well. Paul, he actually mentions in verse 3 that he is imprisoned. If you can't go be the Apostle Paul, pray for the Apostle Paul. If you can't go be the missionary who's out in the foreign field, you could pray for that person. If you're not the person who's going to be like the Apostle Peter and who, who stands and preaches to the thousands, pray for the Apostle Peter. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of people who are in need of prayer right now. There are a lot of people who are bringing the word to out, throughout the world who are in need of prayer right now. One of our mission points right here could be that we are a people wholly devoted to prayer. We have missionaries that, uh, that we support and that we can, are concerned about in Albania. Pray for them. Devote yourselves to pray for them. We have a lot of mission points in this church. We have a lot of work that we do. Pray for those mission points and pray for that work that's done. Pray for the ministry that's done for this church. That is something each and every person can be devoted to. And Paul, I believe, thinks that it matters. Paul's already demonstrated throughout this letter how important prayer is to him. He's listed a couple of his prayers. He's actually like written out, these are the types of things that I pray for about you. And he ends the prayer by saying, now I want you to pray for me. 
We could be a community of mutual prayer, praying for one another, praying for others out there in the world. Paul thinks that's something that every Christian ought to be doing, and he encourages us to do as well. Verse 5, we get the second point. This is something every Christian ought to be doing. This is something that you can do right where you are, and it's valuable and important and necessary and essential to do it right where you are. Verse 5, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outside, making the most of the opportunity, or redeeming the time would be a very literal way to translate that. But conduct yourself with wisdom. That word conduct yourself, it literally is the word walk, like walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Where you go, take wisdom with you. Live in a way where people can see wisdom from you. As I mentioned in the book of Colossians, there's all of these ideas and philosophies, even the word philosophy. Uh, it, it's two Greek words, the word phileo, like for love, and sophia, which is the word wisdom. And the idea of it is the love of wisdom. That's what philosophy is. He uses the word philosophy in this book, talking about all these different philosophies that people have. They can try to pull you in different ways. But what he wants them to recognize is that true wisdom is found in Christ himself. As a matter of fact, if you look at chapter 2 in verse 3, chapter 2 in verse 3, or just earlier in the same book, he'll talk about, uh, I'll back up to verse 2. He says he wants their hearts to be knit, uh, to be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where is wisdom found, according to Paul? It's in Christ himself. Uh, he wants them to have the full assurance that, of understanding that comes from, from a knowledge of Christ, in whom is all knowledge and all wisdom. So when he tells them to conduct themselves with wisdom, that's going to look like something. That's going to look like living like Jesus. That's going to look like Jesus. People should be able to see Jesus in the way that we live our lives. By the way, that passage that I read a moment ago, before we got into chapter 4, where I was mentioning, you know, putting off sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry, and putting on instead things like love and things like um, uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. Like all of that stuff in chapter 3, that is descriptive of what it means to live with wisdom, to walk with wisdom, to conduct yourself with wisdom. It, that's what the transformed life looks like. I think sometimes we can, we can think about, all right, I need to obey Jesus, and so there's these things that I need to do. I need to make sure I don't say cuss words. I need to make sure that I don't lie. I need to make sure I don't do certain things. And those are important, you know. It's not that those don't matter. But at the same time, there is an entire life of wisdom that comes in that that is behind those things. There's there's value and benefit to doing those types of things, to obeying what Jesus says, to obeying what the Bible tells us to do. It produces wisdom and it demonstrates wisdom. I think one thing that uh, the church is in that we could all benefit from and that we could all show to the world around us is that the lives that we're living are actually good for you. And the things that Jesus calls us to do are actually good for you. In deep, motivating, and powerful ways, they're good for you. 
They're transformative for you. It's not just a list of rules that was arbitrarily constructed that we have to bind ourselves to. There's wisdom behind what we do. And that wisdom is rooted in Jesus. I mean, the, Bible's a, the Bible has a lot about wisdom. The Bible seems to care an awful lot about wisdom. When, when uh, King Solomon could have chosen for the heads of his enemies or the wealth or all the women or all the power or whatever, he asked for wisdom as he rules so that he can lead in a way that God approves of in a way where God says, I think the best way to think about wisdom is living your life in a way that God says, that's a good way to live. Living your life in a way that God thinks is a good way to live. That's what wisdom's all about. And that's what Solomon asked that he can rule with wisdom. And we're being told to conduct ourselves and to live with wisdom. One of the things that that's going to influence in verse five is our time. So my translation says making the most of the opportunity. But really, it's the idea of making sure that we use wisely, that we redeem or purchase back the appointed time and season that God has given us, that we consider each passing moment an opportunity for wisdom. That's something you can do no matter where you are. That's something I think that not only will influence what you do, but it very much can influence what you do not do. Um, I don't know that there's much wisdom, in, especially towards outsiders, in getting into constant fights with outsiders about things that don't really amount to all that much importance. Uh, I think sometimes we can find ourselves putting people off of the church and putting people off of the gospel and putting people off of Jesus without Jesus even being the subject. We can find so many different things to argue about and so many different things to, to squabble and to fight about and to put on our Facebooks and to do all this stuff where people see it and they immediately have a negative reaction to the church, even though you're not even talking about what the church is all about and what Jesus is all about. And, and I think wisdom is a way of perhaps living where we don't dedicate ourselves to uh, pointless fights or uh, endless friction, but rather we dedicate ourselves to prayer and we dedicate ourselves to living like Jesus. And finally, verse six, not only can every one of us devote ourselves to prayer, and every, one of ourselves, uh, and every one of us live wisely in the world around us uh, and show that wisdom to outsiders. But we can also, in verse 6, in our speech, be aware of the things that we say and the way that we talk to those who are outsiders. Verse 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. A couple things I think are important about verse 6. It deals with the way that we speak. And it says, speak with grace. Before you say something to a person who's not a Christian, before you post something on social media, before you enter into that argument, one of the questions you should ask yourself is, am I going to proceed with grace right now? Is my speech going to show them the wisdom of God and the grace of God or perhaps is it going to show them something else? Is it going to show them my own wisdom and how smart and clever I am? Because if that's what it is, then we might be missing the point a little bit. Is my speech going to definitely win the argument so that people will think, wow, that guy knows his stuff? Or is my speech going to show them the goodness of God and the love of Jesus Christ? I think we need to perhaps, before we enter into conversations, try to train ourselves to speak in a way that people like to hear it. 
Now that sounds like sugar-coated preaching. I've seen so many things about sugar-coated preaching and you shouldn't sugarcoat things and okay, fine, but put some salt on it. Either way, it tastes good. Uh, That's the actual illustration that Paul's using here. Like he doesn't say change truth or anything like that, but yeah, try to make it taste good. Try to make it something that people want to hear. The, The gospel is very often an offensive message. What Jesus calls people to do is really, really hard. And we don't need to make it harder or worse by presenting it in a raw and bitter fashion. Present it with grace and with salt. Uh, I, I've, you know, I lived in Louisiana before moving here, and there's one thing we learned about cooking in Louisiana is that everything could use a little more salt. Uh, that, that's the way they made everything. I mean, they're, they're, it was very, very flavorful. You didn't, there's not a bland thing that's made in Louisiana. Uh, when you present the gospel to people, when you talk to people, when you have conversations, when you post on Facebook, do so in such a way that it's not raw and bitter, but that it actually tastes good. Um, Paul seems to think that you should devote yourself to prayer, you should live wisely towards outsiders, and your speech should be something they want. You want fries that have salt on them. If you don't put salt on your fries, they're just not worth eating. Uh, There's something about speech seasoned with salt that will draw people to it. And he says this in response in verse 6, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And that's interesting, because that's assuming something, right? The idea that he's telling you how to respond is assuming that people are asking. And why are people asking? Why are people asking about you and the life that you're living? It might be that they've seen you living with wisdom and devoting yourselves to prayer. It might be that they've seen that transformed life right where you are. So those neighbors, those coworkers, those people in your life, you didn't leave them behind to go somewhere else in some foreign mission field. Instead, right where you are, they saw something in you that made them ask a question. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, there's another, uh, there's another assumption like that that's made, where we're told to be ready always to give a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that is in you with meekness and in gentleness. He's saying, people might ask you about some stuff. When they see the life that you're living, that will bring up some questions. So one thing that you should ask yourself right now is, do the people that I'm around, do they know that I've committed myself to Jesus? Do they know that I'm one of his disciples and followers? Do they know that I was sent right here to be an ambassador of Christ and that I have a responsibility to live for him wisely right here where I am? Do people know that I'm living in that way? And if not, maybe it's time to let them know. Maybe it's time to talk about the benefit of Jesus in your life and how it's transformed you or changed you, that you've committed yourself to him, how much you love your church family, how much uh, the, the church that you are a part of is able to make an impact and a benefit in the world. And, and people might ask you some questions. And as you respond, do so with love, do so with grace, do so as though seasoned with salt. When people see you, uh, perhaps you know, th- there are going to be some things you believe as a Christian that are not popular. And people want to know about those. Why is it that a person, a Christian, would have this view on this thing? Or, or why is it that you would view things in this way? You could respond in such a way that is with grace and is a seasoned with salt. Think about not just what you say, but how you say it. And that's something that every single Christian and every single person, regardless of where you are in the world, you can do. That's something you can do right where you are. That's something I can do. And so as we draw our lesson to a close, let's remember we won't all be the Apostle Paul. We might not all have the great stories of escape. We might not always be in danger all the time, but something each and every one of us can do 
right where we live, right where we are. In fact, you were sent here to do it. It's to devote yourself to prayer. Is to conduct yourself wisely towards outsiders. And that you are to speak with them with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you know how to respond to each person who talks to you. Uh, that takes training. That takes you know, effort and practice. But it's something that each and every one of us can devote ourselves to as a ministry right where we are. And if there's anyone here who wants to become a Christian this morning, if there's anyone here who wants to name Jesus as Lord of your life and live for him from this point forward, or if there's anyone here who wants the prayers of the church, we pray that you would let that be known, that you would come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.